Good morning. How are you all doing? Good. Take out your Bibles, if you would, please, and open them up with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew 24. We continue looking at a discussion that Jesus is having with his disciples just, just a matter of a couple of days before he will be betrayed, he will be crucified, he will suffer and die in our place, he will rise again three days later, conquering sin and death for you and for me. And he's having a very personal discussion with his disciples, one that, again, if you, if you only had a couple of days, you knew you only had a couple of days left, you, know, you, would, you would want to gather together those closest to you and, and, and share with them some very personal and, and, and uh, intimate things. And Jesus is doing just that. And we've been talking about the fact that he's been talking about the, the, these last days, the things that are coming in a still yet future, the day of the Lord. That, that begins with the, the, the rapture of the church. Again, as we've stated, that we believe is the next prophetic event on the calendar that kicks this entire day of the Lord time frame off that is followed then after the rapture of the church by the tribulation period and that culminates with the second coming of the Lord Jesus where he will rule and reign for a thousand years. The day of the Lord. Well, I, I probably, you know, there might be a few of you who don't, under, don't know that there, there, there's actually a football game later today. Don't know if you knew that or not, but the Super Bowl. But we knew what day the Super Bowl was going to be played. As a matter of fact, we know what time the kickoff is, 4.30, just in case you didn't know. <laughs> don't, I have a little interest in it. But, but Jesus told us that of that day and that hour, Nobody knows. And he doesn't just tell us once in the text. As a matter of fact, he says it four times in the text that we looked at last week and the text we're going to look at this week. Matthew 24, look, verse 36. We looked at this last week. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Verse 42, where we left off last week, we'll start today. Be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Verse 44, for this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Chapter 25, verse 13, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. Now everything that Jesus says is important, but if he thinks it's important enough to repeat four times, I think that we should take special note of that. And Jesus is not telling us these things to scare us, to stress us out. He's telling us these things repeatedly because he knows us. He understands us. He understands in our flesh and the things that we struggle with. We finished our, our, our message last week, our study last week. If you were here, you'll remember. We, we asked the question, if we knew for certain that Jesus was going to come back in the next 24 hours, would it change the way you lived the next 24 hours? And if we were honest, we said you know, it probably would. It shouldn't, but it, it probably would. And my challenge to you and to me was, was that if we really believe that Jesus could come back at any time, we should live every hour as though it was that last hour. So let me ask, how'd you do this week? 
<laughs> did, 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 you, did you nail it this week? You got it all seven days all the way, or were you like me? Sometimes, some, sometimes shortly after you woke up on Monday, we, we stumbled in that. I'll tell you one particular instance this week when I, you know, it's a good thing I didn't have right in front of it, but when I took off my, the, the packaging for the shirt that I had dry cleaned this week and it was ruined, I, I'll tell you, I was, I was I, I'm glad the Lord didn't come back at that time because I had some thoughts going right then that I was really, you know, he understands us. He understands our tendency towards complacency. That we that we that we get that we can get you know fall back into that regular pattern. You know, why why do now what I can put off till tomorrow? And why put off till tomorrow what I could put off indefinitely? Our tendency towards complacency, and this is so important that Jesus tells us over and over in the text that we have. We pick up in verse 42 again where we left off last week with this reminder. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Be on the alert. That means to watch, but not just watch with our eyes. It's a, it's a, it's a vigilant watch. There, there's different ways to watch for something. There's different ways to watch something. I can tell you right now that my daughter and I have a different idea of what it means to watch the Super Bowl this afternoon. We're both going to be in the same room, same game will be on, but we're going to be watching it differently because I have a feeling sometime in the third quarter she's going to ask me, so are we winning? as she looks up from her texting and the different things that she's going to be doing, whereas I will be actively engaged watching the game. And that's what we are to be. This word, be on the alert, watching, means to be watching with great anticipation, with great expectation, actively engaged, not just sitting around looking up at the sky. And we're going to look at four parables today that Jesus gives on the heels of these, these instructions that he's been t giving them in the discussion that they've been having that tell us what it looks like as to how we are to be watching. What is it is that we are to be engaged in, what it should define us as we wait and watch. Now, before we get into these, we need a little reminder of what parables are and what parables are not. Parables are stories, illustrations that are given to, to make a point, to, to illustrate a point, not to create doctrine on every nuance. And unfortunately, that's what happens a lot of times. A lot of we could take uh, four weeks to go through these four parables and drill down and turn every screw and see where we could go with all of this and miss the entire point. A lot of times we could look at, a, at these parables and start drilling down for water when there's a natural spring right here and we just need to dip in our glass. The points that Jesus makes in these are very plain and they all hang on these things that we do not know when he is coming, so there should be certain things about their characteristics about us. And we can see that first. We look at the first parable, 
verse 43, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known what time of night the thief was, go- was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Here we see the parable of the homeowner, and it speaks to us of readiness. We need to be ready. Jesus gives a very common sense illustration to talk about this. He said, if, 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 as a homeowner, if you knew what time a thief was going to break into your house, you'd be waiting there at the front door with a bat or something, some type of weapon to make sure he can't get in. Now again, this is a parable. We don't look at this and say, okay, well, if there's a thief in the story, that's Jesus. And we're the homeowner, so our job is to keep him out. No, Jesus isn't a crook, and our job is not to prevent his coming. No, he is the king, and our job is to prepare for his coming. The whole point, the simple point that Jesus is making is that we need to be ready. And because we do not know the exact time that the thief comes, we need to be prepared at all times to keep our homes from being broken into, alarm systems and and attack dogs and whatever else, to keep those. You don't just leave your front door wide open. You don't know when somebody might come by. We need to be ready because we don't know the time or the day. And notice he says, you must be ready. Emphatic. Well, the final three parables that we're going to look at today add something different than the first one does. We're going to see a comparison in each one of the parables. Comparison to true born-again believers and the false believers or non-believers. We're going to see the actions of the believers and what should define a believer and actions of non-believers or false believers. We're also going to see the results or what is to be expected in the future for those. True believers honoring the Lord will receive blessing and acceptance and joy forever, eternally. But non-believers, those who, who, false believers, false professions, they will face judgment and punishment again eternally. And Jesus makes that very clear in our parables that we see. The first of the final three begins in verse 45. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions, but, verse 48, If that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him to and an hour which he does not know and will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here we see the parable of the sensible and the evil slave and it's speaking to us about trustworthiness. We see in this parable, as well as another parable we'll look at in a few minutes, there is a, a master, a, a, an owner of, of large property and possessions, and who has servants or slaves. In this particular parable, he entrusts them with his entire household. Do you realize as the body of Christ, 
true born-again believers, what we have been entrusted with by our master, we too have been entrusted with a household. Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And here it is, the pillar and support of the truth. We have been given the responsibility, we have been given and entrusted with the truth and our responsibility is to uphold it. Our responsibility is to support the truth. The truth of the word of God, every bit of it. The truth of the gospel. The truth that there is one way. The way, the truth, and the life. Jesus and him alone. The truth that it is by Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is what makes this body, that is what makes this family different than anything else. It's a heavy task. But our job is not to make it lighter. Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, put it this way. He said, speaking of us as believers, speaking as the church, he said, you are the salt of the earth. Now, he said, you are the salt of the earth, not you will be the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. This is not a command to become salt. And when he said, you are the salt of the earth, he said, you alone are the salt of the earth. There's no plan B. We're it. And the world has stolen that phrase, salt of the earth, and made it into something much different than what Jesus intended for it. That when, when the world has stolen that phrase, somebody says, that guy's the salt of the earth, that means they're dependable. But that's not what Jesus was speaking of with us. Salt, especially back then, was used for a variety of different reasons. First, it was a preservative. It kept things from rotting. You would put salt, you'd put your fish in salt to keep it from rotting. Well, as the salt of the earth, that, that's part of our job. That's part of what we do. The world is a rotten place, and it's getting worse. But it is nothing compared to what's going to happen once we have been removed. Once the Lord takes his church out of the way, it's going to get even worse. If you can imagine, it's hard to but it's going to get worse. Salt is an antiseptic. When something is septic, that means a wound is septic. That means it's filled with bacteria and it spreads and it can be turned to gangrene and have to have like your arm cut off. Well, back then, they didn't have a lot of the medicine that we do today, so salt was used and put in wounds to keep the infection from spreading and to kill the bacteria. Now, they all, one, of the, one of the side effects of putting salt in a wound is that it doesn't feel very good. <laughs> it stings. It hurts. But it's effective and it works. 
what parent who truly loves their child, if there was no other alternative and there was a cut that was going to spread the bacteria and, and force them to lose a limb, wouldn't put salt on the wound even though it hurt? I, I don't want to hurt him anymore. I'll just, I'll just put some milk on it. That won't hurt. That's not love. And we, as the salt of the earth, when we bring the truth, it's going to hurt. But we're not to back away from that, even in the face of persecution, when the world pushes back against those things. We need to love enough to tell the truth, even though it hurts. That's a preservative. It's an antiseptic. But the most widely used thing for salt is another thing that we can see, again, as us, as the salt of the earth, and it's for seasoning. You put, you put things, you put salt on things to add flavor to whatever it is that you're putting it on. But you know what the, the thing about salt is? Is that its, its effectiveness is based on its distinctiveness from what you're putting it on. If salt tasted like eggs, it wouldn't make any sense to put it on your eggs. Its effectiveness is in its distinctiveness. The power of salt lies in its difference of what it is putting itself or what it's being put on. Guys, we can't reach the world by being like the world. The world does not need a Christian version of what it already has because what it already has doesn't work. And if we just put a Christian slant on what the world offers, that's not going to work either. Jesus didn't come to make good men better. Jesus came to make dead men alive. Salt penetrates when it's placed on food. You can't unsalt your eggs. Ever tried? It's, it's a futile effort. Salt creates thirst. You ever wonder why after you get that big thing of popcorn at the movies and you have a couple of mouthfuls, you have this, yeah, uh, un, you can't quench the thirst. Oh, I got to go buy one of those $9 soda, sodas, right? <laughs> That's on purpose, by the way. They, they, they do that because it creates this thirst. We're the salt of the earth. Our lives should create thirst in other people. For the only thing that can satisfy that thirst, and that's the living water. Jesus said we're the salt of the earth. He said we're the light of the world. Which in the same way as the salt of the earth, it means we are, not will be. It's not a command for us to be light. We are the light of the world. And again, the way it is written and the way it was said is we alone are, there's no plan B. But again, just like salt, its power is in its difference from darkness. We are light receivers, that's our privilege, but we are light reflectors, that's our responsibility. And just like, again, the salt situation where it's irritating 
as light. What happens when you shine light into a dark corner or into a dark room? What's in that corner or in that room gets revealed. And because of that and because of everyone's desire to keep their, their sin and everything in the dark, when the light shines on that, we have to expect pushback. We have to expect persecution. People don't want their, their deeds and their life exposed. John tells us that in the Gospel of John. He says that the, the, the world rejected the light being Jesus when he came because they preferred the darkness. Story is told of Billy Graham playing in a pro-am golf tournament many years ago. And once he got done with his round, the pro that he was playing with went into the clubhouse and threw his golf clubs in the corner and began cursing and swearing as he was getting some stuff out of his locker and just really upset. One of his other buddies, other pros came up to him and said, man, what's up with you? He said, I didn't need Billy Graham preaching to me for 18 holes. <laughs> Grabs his clubs and he storms out to the driving range. And as he's hitting more balls out there, just frustrated and again, swearing and everything. And the guy comes up to him again. He goes, man, Billy really let you have it, huh? And he stopped and he leaned on his club and he looked up and he says, no, he never said a word. It was the light that just radiated out of Billy Graham that shone, that shone into those dark spots in his life and in his heart. And he was convicted. Guys, again, the power of the light that we are reflecting is in its distinctiveness from the darkness. I don't know if you've ever gotten away from the city or away up into the, into the mountains or what, going camping and away from all of the busyness of the city and you get out there and there's a night when the moon is full. I used to be, a, some buddies of mine and I had a, a timeshare on a houseboat in Lake Powell and we'd go there once a year for, for about a week, 10 days. And man, you'd get out there and away from everything. In the middle of the night on a full moon, you'd wake up and it'd be like the middle of the day. It was so bright. You could see everything across the light. I mean, it was, it was so lit up because there was nothing interfering with the moonlight. The reason we don't see it like that in the city is because of all the city lights and all of the distractions, all of the other interference that's around. The... The, 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 when, when the moon gets down to just a sliver there, the reason that is is because the, the world is in the way between the sun and the moon. The moon just reflects light, and that's all we do. But if we're not shining as bright as we should, it's not the sun's fault. It's because there's too many things that are interfering, or the world has gotten in the way. We have been entrusted with a great thing, the truth. Jude, in his letter, writes a, a parallel verses to Jesus' parable here. He says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Contend earnestly for it. Fight for it because it's under attack. Jesus, in the parable that we're looking at in verse 48, says, But if that evil slave, he compares it to another slave, another one that has come in, 
not doing it, not defending, not fighting for it. And Jude speaks of that type of person as well as he continues. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Turn the grace of God into licentiousness. Turn the grace of God into a license to sin. We'll just talk about the grace. We won't talk about sin. We'll avoid sin. We won't even talk about it. You just keep living the life that you're living. Everything's okay. That lie has crept into the so-called church. We don't talk about sin. We don't want to offend anybody. We certainly don't want to turn anybody away. So we'll just ignore the, the gangrene that is spreading. We'll just pour some milk on it. Denying our only master and Lord Jesus. Oh, there's many ways to heaven. All roads lead to heaven. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. A lie from the pit of hell that has crept into the so-called church in many places. We have been entrusted with this, this truth. We need to contend earnestly for it. Because people are dying and going to hell every day because they have been misled by the lies of the enemy. Jude says these ones that are saying these things, they've been marked out for condemnation. Jesus she says that, that they will be placed in, put into that place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But we as believers, we need to contend earnestly. We need to fight the good fight. We need to be ready. We need to be trustworthy. Then as chapter 25 begins, we see the third parable. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Verse 13, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Here we see the parable of the ten virgins, and we underscore the, the idea of preparedness. We see it's discussing a marriage ceremony, and we could, again, drill down in all sorts of different directions about how marriage ceremonies back then, there was arranged marriages, there were dowries that were paid, there was an engagement period, all of these things leading up to it leads to the question, okay, well, I thought we were the bride of Christ. So if we're the bride of Christ, who are the, bride, who are the bridesmaids? Who are the virgins? Who are the ones they're talking about? We can get into all of those types of things and miss the very plain point that Jesus is trying to make, are you prepared? Are you ready? 
because we can see that there are many similarities in these 10 women in the story. They all had lamps, but not all of them had the necessary oil for their lamps. Their lamps are useless, worthless without them. We see the wise ones, the five wise ones, they were prepared. The five foolish ones were unprepared. And there's only one way to be prepared. We see at the end that, that there, was a, there was a gate that was closed and no more entrance into the wedding feast that was going on on the inside. They're clearly an illustration of, of heaven. And there's only one way to be prepared. There's only one way to have that invitation. And that is to be a born-again believer. Throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. A born-again, spirit-filled believer. It's the only way to be prepared. When we look at the illustration then and try to draw it back, how, do, how then do we see these, these 10 that are together? And, and there appeared to be no difference then between them. And, and, and let me just ask this question. How many, just show of hands, how many of you went to church before you were saved? <laughs> yeah. How many of you carried a Bible around with you before you were saved? Yeah, I mean, you got you to do that when you're going to church, right? You want to look just like everybody else. The wheat and the tares growing up together. No, not even a, a, a difference that we can see until that day when the, when the harvest and the separation takes place. And that's the point here again. There will be a separation. There will come a time when it will be too late. And those who are not prepared will have no more time. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. They come after the gate's been closed, after the doors have been closed, and they say, Lord, Lord, let us in. And he says, I don't know you. We're reminded and drawn to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. When he says that, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father will enter. And he says, goes on to say that on that day, many... Not a few. Many will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we work miracles in your name? And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Those lamps had no oil. Depart from me. Jesus said that you must do the will of my Father to enter. And he said in John chapter 6, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, 
and I myself will raise him up on that last day. Bottom line is you have to be born again. You have to be a born-again, spirit-filled believer in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be prepared. So I would ask, are you prepared? Everyone in this room, you need to ask that question right here today. Are you prepared? There's no more important question than that. Because we don't know the day or the hour. You can't say, no, I'm not, but I'll take care of that some other time because you don't know when it's going to happen. Many on that day. Hell will be filled with people who say, I thought I had more time. We need to be ready. We need to be prepared. Well, our last parable in chapter 25, beginning in verse 14 says, for it, again, the kingdom of heaven, is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more, but... He who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received the one talent came and said, Master, I knew you were a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. Verse 26, but his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out this worthless slave into the outer darkness in a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The parable of talents, this speaks to us of faithfulness. Again, we see an extremely wealthy master Again, entrusting his servants or his slaves, this time not with the household, but with his possessions, with his wealth. Now, talent, a talent was not a unit of money measure, it was a unit of weight measure. And so, and it was a large weight. Now, it, we don't know if that was gold or silver that was there. The point, the point being, Jesus doesn't want us to try to calculate what five talents is worth. The point that, is, that he's making using this as the, as the measure of it is that it's a large sum. 
that the talents that are given carry with them great value, and even getting one of them is significant. It's not like, okay, this, these, one guy got five million and the other guy got a penny. It's significant, each one that has been given. Guys, we have all, every living human being has been entrusted with life resources. We've all been entrusted with time and money, abilities, energy, and as born-again believers, we have been given and trusted again with things even separate and different than the rest of the world in, in receiving spiritual gifts. And we are only responsible for those things that have been entrusted to us personally. But we are all accountable for those things that have been entrusted to us personally. In our parable here, Jesus tells that Two of these servants that were given these talents immediately went to work with those talents, and it wasn't to gain things for themselves. It was to gain more for their master, working diligently, not with things, again, that they brought, but things that were given to them by their master. And notice the response in verse 21 and 23 to those two servants when they brought back, and again, it wasn't, it was just simply here, this, you gave this to me, I was working with it, I bring it back to you. And notice, the response is the same. For the one who took five and made it 10, the same as the one who was given two and made it four. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Not good and productive servant, not good and brilliant servant, good and faithful servant. You took what was given to you and you were faithful with it. I look at those, those things together and that, that encourages me as I hope it does you. Because we can look at somebody like a Billy Graham and say, man, I wish I had that opportunity. No, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. Because if, if God wanted you to do that, he would have given you the ability and the opportunity to do that. Billy Graham was faithful with what God gave him. You be faithful with what God gives you, and the response and the, and the, the welcome will be the same. Well done. Good and faithful servant. It blesses me when, when we look at, at God's word and, and how he does. Paul wrote this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. He considered me faithful, even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor of the church. Jesus found him faithful and put him into service. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't hire us based on our past performance? 
he looks at us and he calls us into service and he considered us faithful based on our future performance as new creations filled with the Holy Spirit, allowing him to work in and through us. Paul, again, in Philippians chapter two, puts it this way, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works in us. He gives us the desires. He gives us the abilities. He places the path before us. And when we simply just walk in obedience in that path, he's the one who brings the success and at the end of the day, calls us faithful. Well done. What a deal. Enter into the joy of your master. We've all been given talents, resources. We've all been given these things, these gifts, and they're all individual, but how again then do we then individually work this out and to do this? Well, I mentioned to you earlier in chapter five, Jesus talks about us being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He continues in verse 14 of chapter five. He says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lamp stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. There's a key word in, in all of that that it says, and the word is let. Let your light shine. When you light a candle, a dark room, you light a candle and you put it on a table, how hard does that candle work to light up the room? Is it groaning and straining and effort? No, it just lets the light shine. And that's what we're called to do. Just let it shine. Again, we don't manufacture light. We reflect it. It's Christ's light shining on us and reflecting out from us. We can't manufacture it. We need to let it shine. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Anybody else remember that? Yeah, hold on. Yeah, right? We can't manufacture it, but we can hinder it. We can hide it. Hide it under a bushel. Let's try that again. Hide it under a bushel. All right, I'm going to let it shine. That's what we're supposed to do. Just let it shine. If you're a new believer here today, just been walking with the Lord a short time, you might be wondering, when can I, when can I start shining for him? The answer to that is you start shining as soon as you're lit. Just shine where you are. Just shine in the, in the opportunities that God gives you in your family and in your neighborhood and in your workplace. People notice People notice you're shining now and you weren't a few weeks ago. People see that and they're going to ask and they're going to want to know. Let your light shine before men. Just let it happen. Let your good works, let people see that. And then you give glory to God. Paul, Ephesians chapter 2, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would simply walk in them. Guys, He's coming again. He's coming very soon. We don't know the day or the hour. We need to be ready and we need to be alert. 
We need to be trustworthy. No compromise. No compromise in our ministry. No compromise in our witness. No compromise in the message. No matter if it stings. No matter if it shines light where people don't want it shown. No compromise. We need to be trustworthy. We need to be faithful. We need to defend the gospel. We need to demonstrate the grace. And we need to deflect the glory. But first and foremost, none of that matters if you're not prepared. If you are here today and you are not a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, none of the rest of this matters. Every one of us has had to come to a face-to-face with this time. And if you, haven't, if you haven't made that decision, you haven't given your life to Jesus, you are unprepared. And if you, if you are called today, it will be too late. As I said before, hell will be filled with people who thought they had more time. And if you think today, you know what, I've heard this, someday, just not today, You don't know if there will be a someday. But you do know that there's today. I'd like to ask Pastor Brad to come up and lead us in a a last song. But if that's you, understand this. That you are accountable to your creator. Regardless of what the world tells you, you didn't, your ancestors didn't climb out of the mud one day. You were created, and you were created in the image of God, and you will be accountable to that God one day. And the world paints this picture of God, even as this this wicked last slave did, that God is cruel, that God is mean, that God is unjust, that couldn't be further from the truth. But the truth that he is holy and just means that he cannot turn away from sin. He cannot just turn his back on sin. Sin must be dealt with. The wages of sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And because of that truth, and because he is a just God, but because because he is not an, uh, an unloving God, he is a God of love, the Bible tells us that he demonstrated his love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us so much that he became one of us. Jesus stepped off his throne in heaven, came down, lived a perfect, sinless life, and then died on the cross, shedding his blood to pay the penalty for your sin. That is love. But you need to receive it. You need to receive that gift. And the gift comes with a price. You need to give up your life. But I'll tell you the truth. There's no person you want to give that life to than the one who gave his life for you. The one who created you. The one who knows everything about you. The one who knows what's best for you and wants to walk alongside you every step of the way now throughout all eternity. But you have to make that choice. You have to be willing to give him your life. You have to be willing to give him your sin in exchange for his righteousness. So if that is you here today, please do not 
put this off. Please do not walk out of here today without coming face to face with it and giving your life to Jesus. Because again, you're not promised another moment, another opportunity. I'd like to ask now if we would all please stand and we could have the lights turned down. I'd like to ask that nobody leave. We got one last song to sing. And, but if that is you, I'd like to ask that while we sing that song, if you would please come forward. I'm going to be right up front here. I'd just like an opportunity to talk with you and to pray with you.